The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good day, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of Boomer Generation Radio. This is your host, uh, Richard Address, coming to you from WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we are streaming live on WWDBAM.com. You can reach the show at BoomerGenerationRadio at gmail.com or like us on the Boomer Generation Radio Facebook page. And a reminder that all these shows are archived um, as podcasts on my website, JewishSacredAging.com. We're going to be right back with our first segment guest, Dr. Uh, Laura Muscata from the University of Southern California. We'll be doing that right after a message from our good friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall Outreach. Kendall Outreach serves the field of aging by raising public awareness of important health care issues of older adults. And it provides education and training in the development and implementation of comprehensive approaches to safe, individualized, long-term care practices. Kendall Outreach has been sharing Kendall's approach to quality care with consumers, advocates, providers, government agencies, and related organizations since 1989. To learn more, visit KendallOutreach.org. Welcome to our first segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio on this really beautiful day here in greater Philadelphia. Um, For a change, it's beautiful weather. San Diego weather. And speaking of Southern California, not quite San Diego, we welcome to the show and to our microphones uh, Dr. Laura Mosqueda, the Associate Dean of Primary Care, the Chair of Chair and Professor of Family Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, the University of Southern California, down off of Hoover Street in Los Angeles. Um, doctor, are you there? I am. Good morning. Good morning, and thank you very, very much for getting up so early. How's L.A. today? It, it is quite beautiful here. I'm glad to hear things are looking nice in your neck of the woods. Yeah, the humidity here is, has broken. Thank God people don't know what to do with it. So at least for a day and a half, people can run around and breathe. Enjoy. Thank you. Anyway, uh, thank you for joining us here on our first segment here at Boomer Generation Radio. We want to talk about an issue that... Um, I think rarely gets a lot of publicity, especially, um, b- but is there and is talking about aspects of elder abuse. C- can you define that for us real? F- I mean, is there a specific way to look at this? And some people say elder abuse. I-, I think some horrible images come into their mind, but do you have a technical, academic or clinical definition of what that is? Yeah, well, even the way you're asking it is just perfect because my definition, depending on what hat I'm wearing as an as a researcher or as a teacher or as a clinician, might change. So I'm I'm a family physician and geriatrician, and I see patients, mostly older adults, in addition to doing research in this area. And the way I generally think about elder abuse is that when someone takes advantage of an older adult by virtue of age-related changes, like perhaps physical frailty or Alzheimer's disease, something along those lines, and then harms them. Um, and, um, and that generally is what, what we call elder abuse. So th- this would also include issues of, um, if I'm not mistaken, financial abuse or control, um, emotional abuse. Um, 
the the preponderance of scams, you know, the older adult scams, you know, that you've won this or send me your money to this address and you'll win this. This could this also be categorized as elder abuse? Absolutely, because it's really taking advantage of some of the vulnerabilities or susceptibilities that we have as we get older. So, for example, if you haven't maybe been diagnosed with something like Alzheimer's disease, but you're beginning to have some issues, it just seems like some of these scam artists have a radar for, for knowing who to call and, and how to lock into their vulnerabilities and, um, and then take them for quite a financial ride. So I guess that the, the, that leads me to a question because you you've, you've raised the the Alzheimer's things already twice. Um, one of the great challenges that we're facing, and in, 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 in even in the shows that we've done with people dealing with Alzheimer's and the Alzheimer's Association, is the role of the the, the caregiver. So the caregiver, you know, how do they begin to spot um, potential abuse or um, interface or protect their loved one when they're maybe not necessarily with them at all times? Yeah, well, I, I think um, if you don't mind, I'll take the liberty to answer that in two ways. One is, we can come back to this later, the caregiver might be the person who's doing the, the abusive yes. behavior. Right. So we need to keep that in mind. Uh, we have, you know, human nature, a tendency to point at others and say, well, they're the bad guy, but sometimes we need to point the finger inward. Um because I believe that anybody has the potential to to become victimized and anyone has the potential to behave badly. And sometimes when we use strong words like abuse, it's hard to even communicate about it because sometimes it's more just behavior that you wish you weren't doing and kind of cross the line. And then sometimes it's blatantly horrific. So, you know, we do see certain behaviors that really enter into criminal aspects of people being beaten or sexually assaulted uh, or having things thrown at them, really off-the-scale awful things, the majority is more in the middle of, you really shouldn't have done that. Um, And um, the thing that gives me hope about this is it means I think that sometimes we can do a better job at preventing or detecting these issues early to help people so that it doesn't happen. i got to ask you a question that comes up a lot. Uh, here on the show and in my work as I go around the country talking to uh, groups and congregations uh, on the Jewish Sacred Aging Program, that's isolation. Um, the cutting off of social connections with, with other human beings, regardless of where this person may be on the scale or of aging or dementia or non-dementia, but just keeping people isolated for a variety of reasons that really, to me, is is a is a real concept of abuse. Is it? Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's a huge red flag. And so, um, if you have a, a loved one and you have a hired caregiver, and every time you're now calling to say hi to mom or dad, um, uh, the caregiver is saying, "Oh, they're busy. They're in the bathroom. They can't talk to you right now." That's a major red flag for again them. What you just said, getting socially isolated, because on the other end of things. You might be having a conversation between the caregiver and, and mom along the lines of, you know, your daughter never calls you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the one who's here for you. So we certainly have seen those sorts of things happen. Yeah, you know, that that brings another question up to me. Um, I'm sure you've dealt with this. 
uh, and that is the long-distance caregiving issue. And so suppose you have some of that family, let's say, where I started out my my career up in Thousand Oaks, a family living out there, but their mom is living in Sun City outside of Phoenix, and they've hired somebody from one of the agencies that they found in the newspaper, and they're really relying on this person to be the eyes and ears to take care of their loved one because they can't get them back and forth all the time. I'm, I'm sure you've run into what 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 tips can you give because I think you just started to allude to it to that family that they may see you know be careful if you be careful you may you may need to intervene when these certain things start to appear. What 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 are those warning signs? Well, and and. and um, before we even hit the warning signs, you know, most agencies, and you should make sure, do background checks mm-hmm. on the people who are getting hired. But background checks only take you so far. It doesn't, but but at least it's something um, that I would look for with an agency. So as you said, if you if you seem to be not easily able to communicate with your loved one because the caregiver is standing in the way, you know, not handing the phone, etc., I would keep a very close eye on bank accounts. Um, and, um, you know, of course, the caregiver might have access to ATM card and passcodes to help get groceries, et cetera. But there ne- needs to be another set of eyes looking over over the finances as well. Um, if there seems to be a significant change in behavior, your loved one seems more withdrawn or their personality changes or they seem fearful, you know, it, again, this is where I would start asking questions. Um, and the other thing is if you visit and they have any unusual injuries, um, not to overly accept, well, they're old, they fell. Right. Um, but to think that maybe something worse could have happened. Um, I will say, though, that most of the abuse that's going on is not by paid caregivers. It is by family members. Wow. Why, why is that? I mean, I'm, it just seems like maybe it's counterintuitive, maybe – but it would just seem that these are the most people who would be these are the people who would be mostly concerned with the health and welfare and I guess the cynical question behind this is does it have to do with inheritance does it have to do with money does it have to do with working out some past hostilities from growing up yeah it's probably a check to all of the above oh, okay. um and and part of it is also just the sheer numbers i mean most people are cared for by family rather than paid caregivers so there's that you know, just um, you get a, a false sense of things as well, um, just because there's a lot more people being cared for by loved ones. In addition, you have all these past relationships. Um, and I know I've learned, I was very fortunate gr- growing up where I had wonderful grandparents and I had great role models with my, my own parents, seeing how they cared for my grandparents. And I think, uh, you know, you're, I'm 56 years old now, but. 30 years ago when I was starting out in medicine, I just had this real fantasy land idea of everybody loved their grandparents or their parents. And whatever, whatever one of my older adult patients would come into the office and say, my grandson's moving in with me, I would say, that is lovely, you know, mazel tov, that's wonderful. And, and they would always say back to me, yes, it's, it's just great. But now when somebody says, my grandson's moving in with me, I just stay very neutral. I say, what do you think about that? And now what I hear is, well, you know, he's just getting out of jail. I'm a little concerned. Right. Or, you know, just by my own response and being neutral, I'm hearing all sorts of concerning things. 
um, that I, I wouldn't necessarily have thought about in the past. The other thing is that when I see somebody who has a dementing illness, such as Alzheimer's disease, they might seem very vulnerable, frail to me, and and I see this as perhaps a daughter now um, fulfilling her obligation, her what she feels is her obligation to care for her mother. And when you dig just a little deeper, as you alluded to, this mother used to be quite abusive to her when she was a kid. Sure. Um, and and now this daughter is being put in a very difficult situation. Um, and um, so that's another aspect. And, and finally, I think I'll also mention that sometimes caregivers have mental health issues, family members. Um, if they're suffering from depression, anxiety, a schizophrenia that's not well controlled, um, this also could, could lead to some abusive situations. So this transgenerational pattern that, as, as we observed, that, that really does repeat itself. We think so. Uh, I can't, you know, one of the things we get frustrated with over and over in academics is we don't have great data on this. As you imagine, may imagine this can be a hard um, topic to study. Not a lot of people right. want to open up their homes and talk about it. But I'll say based on, on anecdotal observations and speaking with colleagues in the field, we have, we have seen that. Even in domestic violence situations where perhaps there's been a long marriage uh, um, where there's always been some degree of domestic violence going on, and now, for example, the husband gets a Parkinson's disease, and and the wife is basically basically saying, "Well, it's my turn now. Right. You're going to be disabled, and I'm going to get back at you." I've seen that situation um, on several occasions. So that that happens. We're speaking with Dr. Laura Mosqueda, the uh, Associate Dean of Primary Care Chair and Professor of Family Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, the University of Southern California, here on Boomer Generation Radio on WWDB AM860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we'll be back with our guests right after this brief message from our friends at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall resident Harry Hammond. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888-759-0128. Welcome back to our first segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio, and we're going to be back with Dr. Laura Mosqueda. The um, issue of elder abuse, doctor, um, a myth or reality that a lot of this does happen in nursing homes? Yeah, it's it's a reality. Um, again, uh, research here is sparse because you can imagine um, if we um, want to go in and do research on this topic in a nursing home, um, you don't exactly get welcomed with with open arms. Um, I do need to say there are some really wonderful nursing homes that do a very good job. Um, And, you know, so you have the whole spectrum. Um, I was at one yesterday um, with our local ombudsman where we frankly were worried that somebody might be getting starved to death. Mm. Um, So we see some of these extreme examples as well. Basically what you have is a very vulnerable population being cared for by a group who, uh, you know, de- depending on their on their situation, oftentimes are very 
underpaid, um, overworked, have family stresses, don't get appropriate support from administration, and it goes all the way up the food chain with, with nursing homes. Sometimes in nursing homes, it's a, it's a perfectly good nursing home, and you, you just end up unknowingly hire, hiring somebody who might be have sociopathic tendencies and do awful things. Sometimes it's really a system-wide issue where you have CNAs or the nursing assistants struggling to do as good a job as they can, but they simply don't have the, the support from the top they need in order to provide adequate care. Uh, and then you have all the interactions that go on with people at, at nursing homes where they may end up being abusive toward the person who's trying to care for them, and then the person who's trying to care for them is abusive back. That's not an excuse for it. It doesn't make it acceptable in any way. Um, but I think we need to understand all of these different patterns so that we can work toward prevention. Are there increasing number of state laws dealing with this? Uh, well, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think that um, some of some of the frustration from folks such as myself is there are laws already that are not being utilized. Um, there are agencies that are underfunded, understaffed, and who haven't taken this up, frankly, as they should, and who could be doing a better job with the laws that we have in existence right now. Our generation, the baby boom generation, is committed to aging in place, and, you know, you, you go to your friends and sit around, you know, on conversations at dinner parties or whatever, whatever, and, and if this subject comes up, it's always, I'm, I, I, don't, I saw what happened to my parents, I'm not going into one of those places, I don't care. Um, and there's this whole growing industry. Uh, there was another article in the New York Times over the weekend uh, about allowing us to age in place. Does that present different challenges uh, to combat this issue of abuse? Because, uh, you know, the, if companies are trying to help us age in place or you're alluding to families helping mom and dad just stay where they are, does it open the door for no one really taking a, taking a look and no oversight? Yes, it, it certainly does. I mean, if you think about it with a kid, um, you know, uh, you expect to see a kid in the neighborhood, they're in school, if they're missing, you know, you know somebody knows what's, what's going on with little Johnny down the street. But an older adult in our communities, in our society, can kind of fade away and nobody knows what's going on with them. And nobody really questions it. Um, and so an older adult can kind of remain in their own home and you're hoping that they're doing okay, but you don't really have the right to go in and find out if if they're okay or if they're being abused unless you have a really great reason to suspect that there's a problem. So with, with aging at home, one of the other issues that comes up is you need to have the finances to do that too. And so one of the best ways for people to protect themselves is to, is to save and to have that uh, nest egg. Um, so that they do have some flexibility and choice as they get into older age. We're seeing an increasing number of agencies embracing the use of technology to also be more watchful over the caregivers who might be hired at home and um, as a way to also teach the caregivers how to assist with certain sorts of tasks and to be more helpful too. So, I mean, you raise the technology issue is one of the things I was wrote down on my notes. Uh, the, the the granny cam, the grandpop cam, 
you know, as a caregiver, especially long distance, I can put the camera in, I can turn it on. And if I'm, I'm if at Ralph's supermarket, I can just go on my phone or, or tablet and see what's going on. I mean, you're seeing an increase. I wouldn't be, have you seen, this has just occurred to me because again, there's been articles about this. People who are building, uh, specialized housing for older adults, are they recreating the, the wiring of those apartments so that they have these, the ability to put in these cameras so that people can there, observe? Yeah, there are some that are doing that. I've been on house calls where there's a granny cam in. Really? Um, and so I have seen it. Now, you know, you get into issues related to privacy for the older adult who might not want to have that. That's true. Um, and also we have to realize the caregivers are people too. Um, you know, and uh, how would any one of us feel about being watched every moment of every day when we're at work? Um, and and we're going to have to balance all those things out because the other side of it is they're caring for somebody who's very vulnerable uh, oftentimes and, and very bad things can and do occur. So uh, it's a conversation that we need to have as a society, and I think we need to have as in communities and families as well. So, Doctor, why isn't society, with the, the sheer numbers, the demographics are there. It's not an issue anymore. I mean, it's there. Over yeah. the next 20, 30 years, as the boomers, as the boomers age out, uh, between now, let's say, 2030 or whatever, why isn't this more of a, a conversation on, on government and social and organizational levels? this being elder abuse? Yeah, or? this whole, yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I think that um, one of the big issues is that many of the people who've been victims of elder abuse are unable to speak up for themselves. Um, you know, the, the people I've met who've been victimized are maybe dead. They may be demented. Um, they have very little political power. And when you look at some of the major organizations, and just to name names, I'll, I'll mention AARP, well, they're now beginning to look at financial abuse, and we're very appreciative of that. There's more of this focus on we're all going to age healthy and we're going to be fine and, you know, and travel Europe. <laughs> right, it's a myth. Uh, it's another one of our myths. Yes. And it eventually we'll also conquer death, too. That's that's on the agenda, too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. So and, um, and, and before we start running out of time for this segment, um, and I, I, I know we've just scratched some of the surface. If someone's listening and they're they're working, they're they're about to enter this phase with a with a parent or a loved one, and there's a concern, caregiving or whatever. Give me the five major things if you're standing in front of that group of saying, okay, here are the, here's three or five major things that you need to be aware of uh, to make sure that your loved one is being cared for correctly. Well, one thing I would absolutely say is to Google National Center on Elder Abuse, National Center on Elder, Elder Abuse, where we have a huge, we have a whole variety of, of handouts and tips and, and for, for exactly this, this issue. So a couple things. One is protect yourself. Make sure that you have will and, and power of attorney for health care, power of attorney for finance with people that you trust. And if circumstances change, those things need to change. Another would be to stay as socially engaged as possible um, so that 
you are less likely to become a victim. A third is if you are a family member who is providing care, have some awareness of your own emotions as you're going through this, of your own motivations, and be aware when things might be going off. Own up to it and ask for help. Um, and uh, uh, I would say a fourth is if you are hiring a caregiver to stop in at unexpected times and see what's going on. And the fifth would be listen to the older adult. Don't discount an older adult just because they have Alzheimer's disease. If they say something is wrong, if, they, if they're acting afraid, take them seriously. And remember, they're still people, um, even though they may have some changes due to, due to their, their brain illness. Um, but take them seriously and be kind and listen with an open heart. I'm sure you get asked uh, to be involved a lot. In a a real-world situation, how often are these cases prosecuted? Very rarely. Really? Really? Yeah. There are some some amazing prosecutors around the country um, who have taken this issue up. Um, But um, I would would say overall, as a nation, it's, it's disappointing. I'm very happy to say that the Department of Justice at the federal level is looking at this very carefully and has some people in Washington, D.C., who I think are, are going to be changing the landscape related to looking at what's going on and, and, and being more aggressive related to prosecuting these cases. Oh, so that, that, that Google is the National Center on Elder Abuse. That's the key. That's the, that's the first stop, correct? Yes. Dr. Laura Mosqueda, thank you very much for uh, joining us here on the first segment of uh, today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Lots to talk about, lots of issues. Thank you very, very much um, just for opening up the conversation again. And uh, if we can do anything to help you, let us know, please. So thank you. And thank you again for getting up so early to join us here. And uh, just take care of yourself and continued success. Thank you very much, doctor. I appreciate it very much. You're welcome. We're going to be back with our second guest uh, on the second segment to talk about uh, the wellness um, center at Rowan University with Dr. David Rubenstein. And we're going to be doing that right after our musical bridge and a little shout out to a couple of friends of mine, Neil and Jody, um, and for the ability to enjoy what was a cosmic magic Saturday night here. So to sort of like bring that back, um, here is, I hope... Um, from a concert from Barbara Streisand, uh, a really beautiful old Streisand song. One of the loveliest memories I have is working with the brilliant Harold Arlen, who wrote the music to The Wizard of Oz and Come Rain or Come Shine and dozens of other standards like this next one, which was the first Broadway song that I ever sang. When you're in love And you are wondering If he really is the one There's an ancient sign Sure to tell you If your search is over and done Catch a bee And if he don't sting you, you're in a spell that's just begun. It's a guarantee till the end of 
So welcome to our second segment here on Boomer Generation Radio. Um, Streisand was here Saturday night, and thanks to Neil and Jody, uh, I was able to get there, and it was a magical, magical, magical night. And speaking of magic <laughs> in a different type, we welcome to the microphone here on our second segment of Boomer Generation Radio, David Rubenstein, the Associate Vice President for Student Wellness at Rowan University, a local growing major power here, academic power here in the greater Philadelphia area. Welcome, David. Welcome to Boomer Generation Radio. Oh, glad to be here. Glad to be here. So, uh, first of all, this uh, wellness center at the university itself is a very unique operation. So, uh, before we get into some of the mental health concerns and some of these things that we wanted to talk about, talk to me about the wellness center uh, it's called that for obviously certain yeah. reasons. What? How did it evolve? Uh, what do yes, you do? Yes, great, great question. Yeah. So the wellness center uh, opened up on campus about three and a half years ago, and what preceded that was a lot of conversations with our dean of students and vice president, as well as with the president of the university and the cabinet and the board of trustees, and we're all talking about the fact that mental health issues have continued to be pretty significant on college campuses across the country and as well as, of course, at Rowan, too, and we were trying to figure out what would be the best way to really provide these services to students that reduce stigma and increase the likelihood that um, kids would reach out for care when they needed it. And so that culminated in a lot of planning and preparation for the opening of this totally wonderful wellness center in the middle of campus. And this wellness center actually houses 
our mental health services, our substance abuse services, our student health center services, our healthy campus initiatives, our health education to students across the campus, and our EMS services, our emergency medical services. And the really cool thing about this wellness center, aside from it being just a really beautiful, welcoming, and bright building with lots of windows and airiness, is that we also have three large classrooms in this wellness center. And what's unique about that is that naturally brings in bring kids into the wellness center. So whether you're taking a engineering class, a psychology class, a sociology class, a political science class, whatever, all of these different kinds of classes are uh, offered actually in the wellness center. So it's really easy to walk 20 feet from the classroom into the wellness center if a, maybe you're feeling down on the dumps, you're feeling you've been more anxious recently, there's some family issues going on. It's easier to walk 20 feet than it is across campus. Similarly, if you're feeling sick and you think you might have the flu or some other medical issue that's going on that you're concerned about but maybe anxious about dealing with, it's really easy to walk 20 feet. And because all of these services are located in one place. It's really easy for the healthcare professionals to communicate to each other. So if there's a physician that's seeing a student and they're concerned about um, some depression, it's really easy to refer them across the hall to a counselor. And similarly, if a student is seeing a counselor and they're concerned around a medical issue, it's really easy to get them seeing the right person right away. So it's nice, you know, historically these services were on different parts of across the entire campus. So it's just absolutely been wonderful having them um, really in this, all, all located under one building. And of course we've seen our services, our uses of our services increase. So that that's what stands out most about having this um, terrific wellness center. I think probably the other part of the answer to that question is that and what's unique about the wellness center is that we have so many different kinds of services within the wellness center um, addressing at least on the mental health end whether it's individual couples uh, family psychotherapy or it's a very strong group program I think we have something like 15 groups going on this fall we have a healthy campus initiative that was awarded uh, I think about a $270,000 grant from uh, SAMHSA all aimed at suicide prevention, so doing a lot of suicide prevention uh, work with students, staff, and faculty, whether it's in-person workshops or online workshops. Um, we started a Let's Talk program, which um, a handful of universities have started across the country, which places mental health counselors in different academic buildings across the campus, so that way we can reach out to students who wouldn't, wouldn't otherwise come into the counseling center. Um, you know, we have psychiatrists, we have uh, on-call services 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We started having a, one of our mental health counselors is a part of our um, academic success center, which serves a lot of kids uh, who have autism. And uh, we have a large training program. We have a developing LGBTQ services. We do a lot of work on sexual assault prevention throughout the year. And most recently, we started having emotional support animals in the wellness center once a month. And so that's one of, one of been the most recent things. But that kind of builds on the research that tells us that, you know, at least in hospital settings and for uh, medical conditions, there's been some evidence that shows that, you know, being around animals has been really um, 
stress-reducing, and so we've taken that. And um, I'll never forget, I think the first time we offered it, there were 30 kids waiting, and then the second time, 70 kids, and I don't know, I think one of the most recent times, we had 140 kids lined Mm -hmm. up outside the wellness center to come in to pet these uh, five different support animals, and that just gave us an opportunity also to provide other mental health-related information to students who are waiting. So anyways, a lot of different really exciting, fun things going on in the wellness center. We've got a great staff in the student health center and counseling center and substance abuse and Healthy Campus Initiatives, EMS, all that stuff. So it's the same so time. The, the student population that you're seeing now, there's been a whole spate of articles in recent years about our kids um, coming into college in many ways very vulnerable. Yeah. Um, instances of depression, you, you alluded to that a couple of times. Yeah. You're a professional. You teach it uh, across the street at PCOM, the osteopathic. You te- teach at Drexel. You run, you help uh, run the wellness center. What's going on with these kids? Yeah, so, you know, that's been something that um, a lot of uh, healthcare professionals are paying a lot of attention to um, over the last decade is that we are seeing more students that are, well, there are more students that are coming into college in the first place, and there are more students with more mental health issues, and those mental health issues are more acute as well. And so anxiety, depression, relationship difficulties are really the top three kinds of issues that we see um, that are quite common. And I think if you look at uh, data, the national data that was published recently a couple of years ago, uh, like in the last 12 months, college students reported um, hopelessness, depression, as being loneliness as being very, very high up there in terms of their experiences over the last 12 months. So it's something that we're seeing much, much more of. And, you know, Rowan, just like many universities across the country, are, are trying to figure out the best ways to reach out to these kids to get them the support that they need. It's challenging. But do, do, can you... You know, you've been doing this for years, and you have a, a broad understanding of this. I guess the question keeps coming back, what's going on? Why why the rise? Or was this always there, but it was never really talked about? And, you know, when we were in college, the same issues were there, but the, yeah. the services weren't there, the facilities weren't there, the awareness was there, the stigma was greater. Sure. Or is there why? Yeah, so good question. I think that there are a couple of different factors that are accounting to that. Um, one is just simply you do have more kids attending colleges and universities that otherwise would never have been able to come to college. Now I'm talking about um, more with kids with more a history of significant mental health issues or on the spectrum, or there are many, many more supports in place. So it's fantastic and it's great they're coming to colleges and universities and their, you know, their needs for support are there. So I think those two, th- the other, the other issue is I do think the stigma over time has decreased some. We've come a long way. I, I think we have a long way to go in this area, but we have come a long way. So there's more, there is more awareness of the fact that these issues do exist than that there's help available. And there also, you know, the other piece too is for many universities and colleges, the, the services when they come into the counseling center are free, which is nice. 
uh, or the, a, a student health fee pays for the services, uh, which is nice. And so it's easy, relatively speaking, to access those services versus using, say, um, getting uh, going through your insurance and trying to figure out the rigmarole of finding an, a provider that uh, will work for you. And, and depending on your ability to actually get to that provider where these services are all on campus. So I think there are a number of different factors that have contributed to um, more students that have more mental health issues, more acute mental health issues that are coming in to care. So we're speaking with Dr. David Rubenstein here on Boomer Generation Radio. David is the Associate Vice President for Student Wellness at Rowan University. You're listening to Boomer Generation Radio on WWDB AM 860 here in Greater Philadelphia. And we're streaming live all over the known universe, I think, on WWDBAM.com. We're going to be back because we want to shift a little bit from the kids to their parents, which speaks to some of our generation and even grandparents and raise some issues in this. Actually, that uh, Dr. Uh, Mosqueda asks, uh, introduced this transgenerational stuff and whether you see this, certain aspects of behavior on college students being played out in their parents during their orientation. We'll be doing that right after this message from our friends down the street at Kendall. Hi, this is Kendall staff member Sheila Sylvester. This portion of Boomer Generation Radio is brought to you by Kendall, a system of not-for-profit communities and services that advocates for and empowers older adults to reach their full potential. Kendall is committed to working with others as we together transform the experience of aging. To learn more about Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L, visit discoverkendall.org or call toll-free 888 888- Welcome back to our second segment here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. We're with Dr. Dr. David Rubenstein from Rowan University right here in greater Philadelphia in South Jersey, uh, Associate Vice President for Student Wellness. So we talked a little bit on our our first um, go-round about, you know, what's going on with some of the students that you deal with in the Wellness Center. And when we were talking before the show, you mentioned that a significant amount of your work is dealing with our generation, uh, the, the parents who come to orientation and parents and grandparents of these kids. And while you notice sometimes some of the behaviors that you see six months later with kids being manifest in the parents, talk to me a little bit about that. What, what, what are you seeing? Yeah, so – well, it's such an interesting and exciting time for everybody in the family. So you have, I think that you have some variations on some similar theme playing themselves out. So you have the kids, of course, that are getting ready to um, really leave the harbor, if you will, and and begin to try out living a more independent life and practice that, if you will, in so many different areas of their lives. And... On the other side of this journey really is parents that are also trying to begin to think about what the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of their life is going to be like. And that means also as parents beginning to renegotiate their relationships with their children who are uh, becoming young adults and adults and beginning to think about their own relationships and their own the things that are happening in their lives, whether it's their careers or their jobs or where they're living and what or taking care of their own parents and 
what the next 10 years is going to bring for them. And it's a time of really significant transition because invariably you have parents that are now the focus quite naturally begins to turn back to them and what is happening in their life. They've spent the last 18 years or so focusing on raising their their kids and getting them ready for this point to really launch. And now the focus begins to really turn back upon themselves and what is happening for them individually and in their relationships and in their families and beginning to think about how this is going to play out towards really the last you know quarter or last third of their life. And um, what this is going to mean for them. And so, you know, it's interesting because I think parents begin to look at the kinds of issues that either they struggled with at one point in their lives significantly or that have been put on the back burner for a while. And when the focus starts to come back to them, it's an opportunity to really reevaluate and really take a look at uh, what's going on for them and what's, what life is going to hold for them over the course of the next um, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It's not surprisingly, you know, for us to get calls from parents. You know, it, it, it's a continuum. You know, we have parents that are very excited for their kids to be moving on in this part of their lives, and we might not hear so much from them. And then we also have parents that periodically check in on their kids, and we also have parents that are very involved in their kids and what's happening in their lives. And so... Um, you know, the not surprisingly, what what we see is very similar to what has really happened, you know, in their families growing up. And we try and be. There's probably not a day that doesn't go by that we're not talking with, um, you know, parents and families. And so we're what we have in mind is how we can be supportive, really, to the whole system, the kids and the parents. As you know, we recognize that they're both entering a very uh, transitionary time in both of their lives. But. I'm, I'm sure you get these calls from parents because uh, I, I know many of my friends had this call, and I think I did once too, um, that their, they, their son or daughter is at the wellness center or the student health center, and they call up and say, I need to, you know, what's going on with, you know, Scott? Yes. And the answer comes back, well, we Scott's 19 years old, and it's you know yeah. you'll have to ask Scott. We can't tell you. What do you mean you can't tell? Yeah, right. I'm paying all this money. It's yes. my child. I'm a thousand right. miles away. What do you mean you can't Absolutely. Tell? talk to me about Absolutely. that? Absolutely, sure, right. Yes, that's not an uncommon situation scenario. So we we actually try and start having that conversation during orientation, actually, with the parents and talking with them about the fact. A couple of things. One is yes, because their children are 18 and over, there are you know legally considered adult, just like um, if I were seeing their parents in psychotherapy, I wouldn't be able to share any information about if I was seeing uh, their parents. Um, and so their services are confidential. And I talk with about that with the parents right at the get-go, you know, with the exceptions of confidentiality, of course, you know, suicide, homicide, child abuse, um, judge, court order. But aside from those exceptions, one of the things that I do to say to parents, and this is very important, is that, listen... You know your kids better than any of us as your kids are just coming to college. So if you have a concern about your son or your daughter, I we are always here to listen, and we will always listen to what your concern is. And there isn't any rules around confidentiality in terms of that. In other words, we want to know what your concerns are, and then based on that, 
We, <clears throat> while we won't be able to tell you right off the bat whether or not your son or daughter is being seen in the counseling center, depending on what your concern is, we will reach out to your son or daughter. And once again, depending on what the concern is, that dictates how quickly that happened, which could be immediately, it could be later that morning, in the afternoon, that week, what have you. Now, the other thing I say to parents to, to address their concerns around all of this is I do say that if your son or daughter is being seen in the counseling center, we do tell them that we Listen, we got a call from your mom or your dad or your stepmom or your stepdad, and they're concerned about you, and this is why they're concerned about you. And if it's appropriate, we will ask their son or daughter to have them sign a written release of information so we can involve their parent in their treatment if it clinically if it makes sense. So I say to parents, listen, I always want you to call us because it's important that you let us know what your concerns are, and it's, I'd much rather have you call us the second you have a concern about your son or daughter and let us help you through this and also let us reach out to your son or daughter who really may be going through something significant that you just have a gut reaction about better to catch it sooner rather than later or to have something tragic happen too. So. Do, do you have situations where uh, parents who just have difficulty letting go, difficulty of saying, oh, you know, my, my son or my daughter, they're really now an independent person and um, as opposed to the, the phrase in the literature, the helicopter parent. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, yes. Oh, absolutely. So we see that. We see that a lot. And, you know, that's an interesting phrase, helicopter parent. I'm not a really huge fan of that um, phrase, helicopter parent, because I, I understand where it comes from, which is, you know, you have parents that are about to say goodbye, uh, you know, to their son or daughter, who they spent many, many, many years preparing for this moment, and not surprisingly, right to your point, they it's a long continuum. We have plenty of parents who really are quite concerned about how their son or daughter is going to do over the course of this upcoming year, and it wouldn't be unusual for us to get calls periodically throughout the semester in terms of how their son or daughter is doing. And, you know, even with that, we try and keep uh, in mind that we're trying to be both supportive to the student as well as the parent and helping them both through this really time of transition. Do you deal with grandparents at all? Yeah, we do. That's funny. Um, sometimes we do. You know, certainly we have some kids that are starting the university and they have uh, a, a mother or father who's not in the picture for whatever reason. It could be um, a death. It could be a significant health issue, uh, any number of different issues. So periodically we will have grandparents and um, – and once again, I think it's trying to be as supportive and identifying what it is that is going to be most helpful to first to the son or the daughter that's coming onto campus, and secondarily, the system that is going to be supporting them uh, during this process. It just occurred to me, um, we usually think about college students 18 to 21 or so, but there's a significant number of older you know, yeah. students Untr- coming back to college. Non-traditional, yes. Yeah, yeah. not whatever yeah. the whatever yeah. the appropriate the title is, phrase right. is. Mm-hmm. So, what's it? Are you seeing the same types of mental health, social adjustment issues, or are they different from somebody who's? Um, I, there, there are some similarities and there are some differences. I think the differences come with more of the um, developmental challenges that come with trying to balance a career. So you have students that are coming back to school, attending classes, but also trying to manage a career. 
and manage kids, raise your own kids, and attend classes, and begin thinking about uh, what career they're trying to move into given the classes that they're taking. So the issues become more about balance and those very re- – paying the bills, um, very real issues that are right front and center for someone who's, say, 32, 34, 35, or 40, and, say, someone who's 19 or 20 who is just trying to figure out how to manage 24 hours of their day. So and, and what, do, what would you see, doctor, now, uh, given your experience, you know, the, as the major concerns health-wise um, – with kids coming in, mental health, physical health, emotionally, the, you, you alluded to all that that whole yeah. menu before the uh, things that you see. Yeah. Are there one or two things that really stand out that really present an overwhelming amount of concern to the center? Yeah. So. One of the so on the student end of it, as far as the mental health issues, we're aware that starting college it's a time of tremendous transition, and with that transition is going to come stressors in different areas. It could be academic, it could be um, relationship-wise, it could be just figuring out how to balance, uh, how to spend 24 hours of your day on your own, and so. With that, we try and help students figure out where their strengths are and to build on those strengths, and we ask parents about that question too. Take a look at the strength of your son or daughter. Where do they thrive? Where do they have difficulties? Let's think in advance so when you come into this transitionary period, you're able to respond to it. And on the medical end, one of the things that we absolutely encourage students do, to do, and they're not terrific at, at least at the start, <laughs> is that if they think they're not feeling well, like have the flu or coming down with something, we have some kind of health or medical issues, sometimes students, they don't come in to get the medical help or treatment they need. They come in a little bit much, well, a little bit later, and that, that makes treatment a little bit more complicated. So we really encourage them, if you're not feeling well, come in. Come in sooner rather than later. So there's probably some people listening to this either live or on the, or the streaming or later on the podcast on jewishsacredaging.com um, who are right now, since we're talking about the towards the end of August, packing up that kid for perhaps the first time um, and going through all the emotions of their own transition, as you were alluding to, and getting ready for that drive to the university for the first time. All of it, many of us remember that when we did that to our own kids. Um on the other end of that reception, mm-hmm. wh- what's the best piece of advice can you give to those parents um, as they're preparing for this transition? Sure. So I think the best, I think one of the really important things to communicate to your son or daughter is to say something like, you know, although you are, you know, leaving the home and family to attend college. You know, you're never going to be leaving me. In other words, I'm always here for you, really communicating that message. So no matter what, whether you're at a college or university 20 miles away or 200 miles away or 2,000 miles away, is that I will always be here for you if you need me. And just to really communicate that message and just that knowledge and that perception of support is really, really important for their kids, their sons or daughters, to know, no matter how far away they are or no matter what is going on. So it's, it's the bottom line is uh, we love you. 
Yeah. Right? No matter yeah. what. We yeah. love you. Yeah. And no have what. fun and no matter what the issue or problem is, relationship issue, medical issue, mental health issue, something that they never dreamed of happening, we're here for you no matter what. Wow. Dr. David Rubenstein, uh, Associate Vice President for Student Wellness at Rowan University. This is fascinating. And uh, the center and the way you work with all the, the, the challenges, um, possibilities of of students and equally as important as you've been discussing uh, the moms and dads and grandparents and the families. It is a family systems issue, isn't it? Continue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to thank you for um, joining us here on this uh, segment and this edition of uh, Boomer Generation Radio, David. Thank you very, very much. I wish you continued good, good luck and success. Have a good semester. Yeah, my pleasure. To, to all of you, uh, thank you for joining us here on today's edition of Boomer Generation Radio. Uh, we'll see you next week. In the meantime, just take care of yourself. Enjoy this day. Stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. We'll see you next week.